In this episode, we speak to Peter Derrick about the Transit Museum in downtown Brooklyn, located fittingly in a decommissioned subway station at the corner of Borum and Skemmerhorn Streets. Derrick, a retired professor of history, is the author of Tunneling to the Future, the story of the great subway expansion that saved New York. He also ran capital projects for the MTA and helped establish the museum in response to popular demand over a temporary installation in 1976, celebrating the subway's 75th anniversary. The museum's popularity has continued with subway, bus, railway, bridge, and tunnel memorabilia, lectures, seminars, films, and tours, all explaining why, as Derek argues in his book, New York City's history is unimaginable without this enormous public investment, which has, among other things, long made the city an economic powerhouse. For more podcasts like this and for more Gotham Center programming, visit us at gothamcenter.org and sign up to our mailing list. Thanks for listening. Peter, maybe you can start us off by telling us, why does New York City have a transit museum? Why does it need one? Well, because New York City is dependent on transit. At least the Manhattan Central Business District is dependent on it. I don't know how many million riders come in every day and go home every night on the subway. And without the subway, New York City couldn't function. Well, and like you argue in your book, without the subway, it's really hard to imagine New York City growing historically the way it does. Right, exactly. There was lots of empty land or semi-empty land in the Bronx and Brooklyn and Queens. It's just that you needed to have some way to get to and from there by transit because the automobile at this point was not considered a, a major way of commuting, at least within New York City. And so the whole idea of the dual system contracts was to build new lines to open areas in, in, in the outer parts of the cities and that then private developers would come along and build apartment houses and single and two-family houses in those areas. And that's exactly what happened. I mean, all of New York City's population growth of about 2.8 million from 1910 to 1940 was in those areas opened by the dual systems. And, and the only way to get from the outer parts of Brooklyn and Queens and the Bronx to those areas was by subway. Nobody in, in the 1920s had any conception that the automobile could deal with that. So this is rather exactly like the Highway Act, which opens up all these areas yes. outside cities yes. around the country. Yes. And it's a pre-highway world because the automobile really isn't seen as a mean of commutation until the mid and late 20s and not until the 1930s, really, in the rubber Moses. So up until the 1920s, everybody, when they were thinking of opening new land in the outlying parts of the city for development, they were thinking of building new subway lines, not highway lines. Okay, so when is the great subway expansion? The Great Subway Expansion, that's the title of my book, is in March 1913. The first subway opened in 1904, but it was a very short subway system. It only went in part of Manhattan and, 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 and the Bronx. And the, the dual system subway of 1913 went to all the outer reaches of the city, and it was intended to develop open farmland into a residential and commercial park. And what about the social context? In some ways, the city back then was very similar as it is today, uh, with and for housing and the pressure for growth. Right, right. Except, I mean, the city was growing at 100,000 people a year back then, so a million every decade. So it was going from 3.5 million to 4.5 million to 5.5 million to 6.5 million, and ended up being 8.5 million at one point. And fear of disease was part of the reason that the subway was expanded. I mean, the Lower East Side in, in 1900 was the most crowded place on earth. Uh, and as a result of the overcrowding, there was high levels of diseases, especially tuberculosis, which until the 1940s, when penicillin came along, was, was not curable. Though so hundreds of thousands of people were dying of tuberculosis every decade, 
And the idea was if you spread the population out to the outlying boroughs, it would be less concentrated and be less disease. Most of the people who moved out there were uh, lower middle class and middle income people who could afford the, the rents in the outlying boroughs. Because the rents in, in, in Manhattan, because Manhattan was so congested, were fairly high. So for the same amount of rent that somebody was paying for a crappy one-bedroom apartment in, in the Lower East Side, they could get a two-bedroom apartment up in Fordham. Now, you had to commute every day 45 minutes each way to get there, but it was a much nicer area. There were a lot more parks in the outlying parts of the city. And most of the Bronx, good part of Queens, and all of southern Brooklyn developed along the dual system lines in much less dense neighborhoods in the older parts of the city. Can you talk about a group of progressive era reformers in your book? Led by George McEnany. Can you tell us a little bit about him and his role with the development of the subway? Yeah, McEnany was a uh, reformer who was president of the City Club between 1906 and 1909. And then in 1909 was elected borough president of Manhattan. And as borough president of Manhattan, he was appointed to a transit committee that basically planned the existing subway system. So if any single person after Robert Moses is responsible for the development of New York City, it's George McEnany. He's a forgotten person now, but in the 1920s and the 30s, uh, when he was head of the Regional Plan Association, he was a big player in New York City politics and uh, planning. So, I mean, people think the subway was built by a private company, which it was, but it was, un was under plans developed by, the, by public engineers and under the supervision all the time of, the, of public sector employees. So the subway was never private. It was always owned by the city. Well, that was going to be my next question is what role does the government take in this and how is it structured differently? In well, terms the, the, the trouble was in the 1890s that the private companies didn't want to take the risk of building a subway because subways are like four or five times as expensive per mile as elevated lines. And they were willing to build new elevated lines, but they didn't want to build underground lines all over the city. And so the city agreed to take the risk of building the subway system. So there was a deal made in 1913 and two contracts signed with the two private transit companies to greatly expand uh, the size of the subway system from less than 300 miles to over 600 route miles. Uh, and that was the dual system contracts of 19. And it's called the dual system because it's sometimes underground and sometimes above. No, it's called the dual system because there were two subway contracts signed, one between the city and the Interborough Rapid Transit Company, which operated the first subway, and the second between the city and the Brooklyn Rapid Transit Company, which later became the Brooklyn Manhattan Transit Company. Most of the new subway lines in Brooklyn were BMT lines, and they got a new trunk line in Broadway from southern Manhattan all the way up to Midtown and into Queens. And that was the distribution system for the Brooklyn Rapid Transit lines. So people could go from Bensonhurst in South Brooklyn in, in less than 45 minutes to Midtown. And so how long does it take to develop the system? The system developed between 1913 and the early 1920s. Almost all the lines were open by, the, by 1920 or 21. Uh, the last line opened in 1928. Subway plants nowadays get planned and then they never get built. All of the dual system lines that were planned in 1913 opened by the late 20s. Right. The Second Avenue subway. Well, the Second Avenue subway was part of, of a 1924 plan to expand the subway system, which oh. didn't get all built. I mean, some yeah. of it got built and some of it didn't. And the reason it didn't get built was because there was never enough money to keep the existing system going in terms of capital renewal and in addition to that, building new lines. And how were they able to build all of this in such a short period of time? Without computers and without all sorts of sophisticated programs, these guys just got together and wrote it out on paper and, and did it. 
And a lot of the companies that built the, the subway lines built one line, and then they would get it built another line. So they got experience building lines. So there was a whole Momentum. body of experience that uh, that helped them build the subway system in as short a period as was possible. I mean, it, it's impossible to think nowadays of building a subway system exactly. uh, 300 miles long uh, in, in 10 years. I mean, people would say, oh, you could never do that. But they did it. They did it because they had to do it. I mean, the city was growing by a million people every decade. You needed to have some place for people to live. And there was no more room for people to live in the Lower East Side or in the older parts of Brooklyn. So they had to find new land for development in the outer parts of the city. And the dual system contracts were designed to spread the population out or to allow this population to be spread out to those areas. So where does the money come from? Half from the city and half from the private companies. Part of the deal, which is why the city was willing to guarantee the profits of the companies, was that it was like a $340 million deal. Almost $200 million of that was from the city, but the rest was from the private companies. So in order to get the private companies to participate, they had to guarantee them the profits that they had been making before. The companies didn't want to expand the subway system if they were going to make less money than they had already been making on their existing lines. The city basically guaranteed them the profits they were making in 1913 for the life of the contracts as a first lien on the fare. And what role do the banks play? Well, the House of Morgan was the banker for the IRT and Kuhn Lobin Company was the banker for the BMT. And they're very strong behind the scene players. They were involved early on in the, in the subway and then they ended up financing the subway system. So the banks were very important, especially the House of Morgan. And did they have any specific demands on the construction? or No, they just wanted to make sure they got the principal interest on their money. So, I mean, this seems overall like a tremendous success story in New York City's history. It's, it's the most important <laughs> success story in the history of the city. And, and it's a pity that in the 20th century, most people think of Robert Moses in the building of the highways. But the building of the subway system under the 13 dual system contracts and, and the later 1920s uh, order transportation contracts was just as important as the highway system that Moses built. And in many ways more important because more people commute from Brooklyn, Queens, and the Bronx into Manhattan on the subway much more than the, the automobile. The automobile just couldn't possibly handle the load. And what are the controversial aspects? The first lien was to the private companies. So they were guaranteed, before the city would make any money on its investment, the private companies were guaranteed their profits. But the city felt that it had to do that in order to get the companies to put up this $140, $150 million towards the $360 million, which in current days, $360 million is worth about $25 billion. So the project comes in on time, under budget, turn in riderships within 1% of the reformers' projection. Right. Did the system ever turn a profit? No. It would have made a profit if the city had allowed the fare to go up, but the contracts included a provision that the fare would be five cents for the life of the contracts. This was signed at a time when there had been no inflation for decades before 1913. So nobody expected the cost of construction and, and the operation to double during World War I. But it did, and the five-cent fare wasn't able to support even the interest in principal on the debt that the, that the companies owed. So the city had to pay out of tax revenue for the subway from the early 20s on. Most people don't realize that the subway has been publicly subsidized since the 1920s, not the 1960s. And if there hadn't been inflation, it would have worked. Or if they had let the fare go up 
But the fair became one of the hot button political issues in New York. And so saving the five cent fair became the mantra of all the mayors. As a result, the transit system got screwed. Is this part of the backstory to why the subway experiences difficulties in the 60s and the 70s? Yes. Instead of putting the money into maintenance and, 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 and keeping the subway system going, the idea was always to keep the fare low and even rise even with inflation. If you don't have enough money to keep the system going, the system begins to fall apart, and that's exactly what happened. It was only when Richard Ravitch became chairman in 1979 that he, in 1980, asked the MTA staff and the staff of the Transit Authority and the Long Island Railroad and what became Metro North, what was wrong. And they said that not enough money was being invested in capital renewal of the system. And so he put together an $8.5 billion transit plan, which basically quadrupled from $300 million a year to over $1.5 billion, the amount of money that was spent every year on fixing up the existing subway system. So Ravish is a hero that most people don't recognize in terms of keeping the system in a state of good repair and, and improving the system. Yeah, he was able to do that because he went to Albany and he made a bunch of proposals, including uh, selling bonds backed by fair revenues, which was very controversial because it meant that once the city sold the bonds to pay for capital improvements, that the fair would have to go faster than inflation. But Ravage made the point, well, do you want the system to fall apart or do you want the system to be rebuilt? And he was able to convince the people in Albany, including myself. I was a mucky-muck in Albany back in the 70s and early 80s. I was head of a commission on critical transportation choices. And we worked together with Ravitch and his staff to put together the first capital program for 82 to 86. And since that time, the level of capital investment has remained at that level, which is why the subway is in decent shape now. It's not in great shape, but it's so what happens after Ravage? Today, well, many people are very frustrated with the subway. Is it a failure of, of imagination, of governance? Of No, Ravage said that a lot more money had to be invested in the capital renewal of the subways and commuter rail and bus system. And that created the first capital program. Almost all of that was aimed at bringing the system back to a state of good repair. It's been continued in five-year programs ever since then because that became the model for what needed to be done. Nobody after Ravage got that fourfold increase in money. Nobody ever said they should go back to what we were spending in the early 80s. And so the subway system in the last two decades has basically been rebuilt and is in pretty much of a state of good repair. I mean, there's still lots of problems with the subway system and everybody always remembers the problems. But the subway system basically is in good working order. Uh, and if it wasn't, then the city would be in really bad shape because Millions of jobs that exist in the Manhattan Central Business District could not exist without the subway system. I mean, the automobile can only carry a very small percentage of those people and because the highways would be completely overcrowded, and there's nowhere to park in Manhattan. And if you want to park in Manhattan, you're paying $40 a day. So the subway is essential. Without it, the city couldn't function. What about the federal government? New York City provides a tremendous amount of the economic output of the United States as a whole. Does the federal government ever pick up its share of responsibility recognizing the importance of the subway? No. The federal government has, has, since the 1970s, funded capital projects for the subway system. Uh, and for a while, it funded operating assistance. But under Reagan from 1980 on or 81 on, the federal government pulled back from the subways. 
the Republicans just didn't see it as being important. They thought it was subsidizing people who should pay for the subway system themselves. And there's a whole big debate as to what share the fare should pay of the subway system. Right now, it only covers about 60% of the cost of the operations. So the whole question of operating subsidies and capital subsidies is kicked around every year or two and every five years for the, for the capital program. And there's never enough to go around. And so the subway system is never completely rebuilt. It's only partially rebuilt, and it always seems like it's falling apart. And so people are very critical of it. Why is it always falling apart? Well, it's, it's always falling apart because it's an asset that's worth hundreds of millions of dollars, the hundreds of billions of dollars. And all of those pieces, like a subway car, last 30 years, and a subway car costs about $2 million a subway car. So you have to spend 6,000 subway cars at a 30-year useful life. You need four or five hundred million dollars every year just for subway cars. And then on top of that, you have tracks and signals and, and, and the rest of the system. So you need about four or five billion dollars a year in capital assets just to rebuild the existing system. That's before you even think of building something new like the Second Avenue subway. So when we're talking about rebuilding the system today, are there lessons from this early period we should be bearing in mind? Well, I, I think the lesson from the 80s on is that you have to keep on putting a lot of money into the capital renewal of the system. It's, it's a form of maintenance, but it's really capital renewal. It's replacing capital assets at the end of their useful lives. I mean, maintenance usually means things that you have to do on a day-to-day, a year-to-year basis. But uh, capital money is usually spent on projects that have a useful life of six years or more. So that's so they're big ticket items like the Second Avenue subway and new subway cars and stuff like that. There are things that you you legitimately should borrow money for. But then when you borrow the money, the question is who's going to pay back the money? If you sell bonds backed by operating revenues, then the operating revenues, that is the fare, has to pay for them unless the state or the city or the federal government is willing to pick up the tab. And up to now, this None of them have been willing to pick up the tab. In fact, they've done just the reverse. They've taken money away from the subway system. So Cuomo, for example, who has this reputation as being this friend of transit, is really taking a billion and a half dollars away from the subway system. He's no friend of transit at all. And I think he's not a friend of transit because he's an automobile guy. It's really what the, the root cause. I mean, he thinks the automobile is just the solution to everything. Well, and he's not, he's not distinct in that. Um, no, no, he's not distinct. No, that's why he's, he's elected governor every four years. Would the problem be solved if there was less gubernatorial control? No, somebody has to control the system. I mean, the MTA is supposed to be an independent agency. That's what theoretically was created as, but it's never really been independent of the governor. Ravitch basically told the governor that they weren't spending enough money on the subway system and that he was going to raise money for the subway system. And if the governor didn't like it, he could fire him. Well, the governor was too chicken to fire him, so he let Ravitch do what he needed to do. And subsequent chairman of the MTA, most of them have followed what Ravitch was doing. So the MTA is a sort of funny in-between agency. It's, it's not a state agency. It's not a city agency. It's just a quasi-independent agency, yet it's dependent upon both the state and the city. And every five years, there's a deal made for a capital program, and almost every year, there's a deal made for operating the system. And there's this whole question of what the fare should be. Why should the fare be kept so low? I mean, most people don't think the fare is low. I understand that. But the fare relative to the cost of operating the system, it's actually gone down in percentage terms. So there's a constant debate as to what the passengers should pay for the ride and what the tax money should pay for. And the, the debate is never settled. It never will be settled. Well, as things stand presently, they do pay for quite a bit of the 
Well, that's so quite a bit. I mean, in, in London, they pay all of it. I mean, and in Paris, they pay almost none of it. It's the political context of the country. I mean, in this country, the federal government gives a little money, and the state and the city give a little money. In France, the federal government pays most of the cost of the system, which is why the Paris metro is so much better than the subway system in New York. They're willing to invest billions of dollars in, in building new lines and they're fixing up the existing system. So every country is different. Tokyo, most of the lines are private and they have to raise money privately. So every country has its own way of dealing with transit. Right. So I guess this brings us back to where we started with the Transit Museum. Is this the great value of a Transit Museum in New York City? Well, I think the Transit Museum is an extremely important place. It allows the MTA and the, tra and the Transit Authority to, to show off old subway cars, which are very, very popular, and have exhibits on how the system developed and why, why the subway is so important. The subway and the bus system. People often forget about the bus system, but the bus system carries 800 million riders a year. Subway carries well over a billion riders a year, but, but the bus system is also very important. So you've got a huge transit system in New York that's essential for the life of the city, and the Transit Museum is a critical part, I think, of telling that story. And they take hundreds of school groups every year into the Transit Museum, and the kids love it. And it's a very popular museum, I think. Well, thanks. Peter, thanks so much for speaking with us okay. today. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Sights and Sounds. Be sure to check out the rest of our podcasts at GothamCenter.org and sign up to our mailing list to find out about other programming here at the Gotham Center for New York City History. 